0: Hello and welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. Now, James, Boris Johnson ended last year in a pretty awful position, probably the worst months that he'd had in his premiership so far. But you write in your political column this week that perhaps it was actually somewhat of a blessing in disguise in the way that it showed him how best to govern.
1: Well, I think the first thing says. I think he, he probably thinks it's a, it was very well disguised. But I think what it, what it has done is, if you think back to two years ago, just after Boris Johnson won that 80-seat majority, he was a totally dominant figure in his government. I think that people thought that he had won a majority that no other Tory could have won. He created a new electoral coalition that was as much about his role as a tribune of Brexit as it was the fact that he was leader of a Conservative Party. And he had won that majority on a manifesto that, that wasn't kind of classic Tory fair. It envisaged a bigger role for the state than the Tory party has since at least 1975. And what I think that meant was that Tory MPs in the cabinet were prepared to defer to him even when they didn't agree with him. And, and that lasted for a remarkably long time. You know, just think back to just September when. Uh, he decided he wanted to increase national insurance to put more money into health and social care. I think if you had held a secret ballot of the cabinet, you probably wouldn't have got majority support for that. But, you know, they swallowed their objections and backed the policy because he was the prime minister. But then what you saw with that cabinet meeting just before Christmas to discuss whether further lockdown measures were needed, you saw a very different thing going on there. You saw... Boris Johnson having to chair a cabinet meeting, you know, went on for several hours. You know, most of his cabinet meetings are perfunctory affairs, you know, wrapped up very quickly. I mean, seriously, cabinet ministers often will say to you about cabinet, you know, so-and-so talks a lot in cabinet, so they're likely to get done at the next reshuffle. You know, even speaking in cabinet, even to praise the prime minister was considered as something that was going to kind of mark you down. But instead, at that meeting, he had to let the meeting run, let everyone have their say. And the sense of the meeting at the end was no more restrictions. And that was, so that was the route he went down. And ironically, I think that, you know, for all his political problems right now, of which there are undoubtedly many, the fact that he didn't lock down is the thing that gives him the potential chance of a political revival because he can use that to try and rebuild his relationship with his party And then he can use the fact that the booster campaign prevented the need for another lockdown to try and win back some of the government's very lost reputation for competence with voters. But I think what he should remember is that, you know, the the potential for a political revival that he now has, that comes from a decision collectively made. That comes from not just, you know, number 10, a bunch of people sitting in a room making a decision and then implementing it. It comes from kind of proper cabinet government. And I think if he did more of that, if he returned to be primus inter pares, it might actually lead to some better decision making.
0: Mm. Fraser, you've written in the past about how Boris Johnson used to run his team in the London mayoralty as a court system with different factions and he would be on top hearing the best suggestions. Do you think he lost some of that in the early years of his premiership?
2: Yes, for those of us who have always said that Boris Johnson would be a good prime minister, this is the big mystery. I've always thought that his great skill is assembling a very good team and relying on that team and basically standing back from it. When he was doing my job, when he was editing with Spectator, that's exactly what he did. He assembled a fantastic team of pretty diverse people in whom he inspired great loyalty and um, energy. He did the same in London and he was a bit of a flop as Foreign Secretary. I thought that was because he couldn't really appoint people in the same way and but Theresa May gave him a deputy, Alan Duncan, who hated him. But when he was Prime Minister, of course, he'd be able to um, pretty much appoint who he wanted. Now, <clears throat> This hasn't worked out. In fact, to be honest, one of the real shocks of Boris number 10 has been the sheer turnover of staff in number 10. At times it looks a bit like um, Donald Trump's White House. You're getting people coming in and out the whole time, usually with terrible stories to tell. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're, we're expecting another Dominic Cummings blog about the sort of terrible things that, that Boris did. And this is a bad sign. High turnover of staff is a bad sign of something going wrong. It suggests a dysfunctional number ten and a number ten which isn't capable of making decent high quality decisions. We saw this in the Owen Paterson affair, uh, and I suspect number ten was all set to put Britain back into lockdown until the cabinet rebelled effectively and forced Boris not to do it. I think so you've now got the reverse of you know w- w- when Churchill decided to fight in the second World War. It was a close-run thing in the cabinet. In the cabinet with the Halifax, etc., were thinking of sort of appeasement, and then they had this. I and mean, then Churchill, at the end, once they narrowly decided to fight, he gave his little speech saying, "I'm sure any one of you would have struck me down if I said we should appease uh, rather than fight." In other words, Churchill created this kind of myth of the cabinet being unified. I think the cabinet now is creating the myth of Boris being decided not to lock down. I think Boris's great political boast this year will be that he didn't lock down, he didn't believe the modellers. As a result, England got away with minimal COVID damage, and we've taken a a more liberal, bolder way out of this. Now, this wasn't his idea. This was an idea given to him by his cabinet. And I think there's a reasonable chance the cabinet government will work well for him. I've got a pretty high opinion of quite a lot of cabinet members. I don't share the common view that they're all yes-men and doofers. And I think that if Boris works out, he's probably got more talent in his cabinet than he has in number 10. He ought to use those cabinet members more wisely.
0: James, as well as the confidence factor from the majority that you mentioned just now, do you think Boris Johnson is also, dare I say, a little bit scared of creating big beasts in the cabinet because of his own experience as not always a loyal cabinet minister, for example. We've seen lots of profiles about Liz Truss over the Christmas period. Uh, Rishi Sunak is often touted as a competitor. Is he worried about his own position as well?
1: So I think that when he appointed his first cabinet, the kind of key test was, were you going to be prepared to stomach and support the stuff he was going to do to get Brexit done? You know, think of prorogation and the like. And, and I, think, I think he is trying. I think in the last reshuffle, you did see a bit more emphasis on people with a track record of getting stuff done, look at Nadim Zahawi, the vaccine minister, being promoted to be education secretary. But I also think that in terms of Boris Johnson's own position in the Tory party, it would be smart of him in his next reshuffle to, to, to show a confidence to bring back some of those people, such as, you know, Jeremy Hunt, for example, into the government and say, look, you know, I want to make use of all the talent in the Tory party. Because I, I think, I, oddly enough, I think that, you know, prime ministers with strong cabinets, you, you put the negative case there, Cindy, which is, you know, oh, if you, if you let people, if you have, have strong cabinet ministers, they will become a threat to you. When I actually think of the governments that, uh, did well, won big majorities, you can name lots of their cabinet ministers. They have, they have big beasts in that government. And I think that there is no harm in that. Now, I think some people say, oh, cabinet government, uh, you know, it's never going to work because the prime minister appoints cabinet. That is true. But proper cabinet government doesn't assume that the prime minister is just another cabinet minister. That would be absurd. But the idea is that the prime minister is, 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 you know, primus inter pares, you know, first among equals. And I think that that is not a bad method of doing it. And I also think that you might get better, you're less likely to get groupthink if You have a discussion around the cabinet table and, you know, everyone has to prepare their arguments. And it it does lead to better testing of arguments than just very small groups of people making decisions and then deciding to go ahead with them.
2: An important point James makes in his column is that Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's been one of the most vocal cabinet members criticising Boris uh, for the tax rises, for lockdown and other things, is actually one of the most pro-Boris cabinet members. So I think M- Mogg will not be doing this because he wants Rishi Sunak to be chancellor or anything like that, or wants the job himself. He will do it because he wants the Boris project to succeed, and he's working out that on its current trajectory the Bo- Boris project is failing and will fail. So I think that those rebelling against Boris, if you want to do that, are, are doing this to try to steer him onto a course that is sustainable and sees him staying in place until the next election. Uh, I do think what, what James was um, saying in his Times column about the cost of living is absolutely crucial. I mean, if if Tories can't cut taxes, what's the point in voting Tory? There will not be much of a response to Labour over the next election. And I think those who telling Boris to, to cut taxes in the Cabinet are doing this not because they want to rebel against him, but because they they can't see how he can be re-elected after breaking his promise not to raise taxes. So I think we should not confuse here rebellion against him in the cabinet with disloyalty to him as a leader. I think most leaders of any organisations would really want those around them to shout out when they think they're making a mistake and save them from that mistake. Certainly that's what you guys are very good at doing here in The Spectator.
0: (laughs) And James, finally and briefly, do you think that this is the trend for, for the for the remainder of Boris Johnson's government? As in, as in, can he keep up this kind of collective governance?
1: Well, I think in the short term, he doesn't have much choice to. I mean, it's worth remembering that at that cabinet meeting to discuss lockdown measures, you know, just the day before that, the resignation of David Frost had become public. And, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, those around him felt that he couldn't afford to lose another cabinet minister. I think mean, that was true. I I do doubt whether he has the patience to govern in a collective, deliberative style for that long. Most prime ministers get impatient and just want to make a decision and impose it. You also get to this other point, which is, you know, there are debates in number 10 about what to do on policy. And then once that's been reached, the people on the winning side of that debate don't want to have to go through another debate in the cabinet. They just want to impose the policy. But actually, I think that extra level of challenge does tend to lead to better government. I I suspect that there will be by necessity a greater emphasis on cabinet government in the coming months. I think the big question is, if Boris Johnson's political fortunes began to revive a bit, would he then try and revert to the old model or not? I suspect his instincts would be to do so.
0: James and Fraser, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, do leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us to get discovered. And also sign up to Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, which is at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.